Thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of the Music History Project. Today we're going to be talking about a very talented recording engineer, Miss Lenise Bent. I'm so excited that we have this opportunity to talk about her career and listen to her 2014 NAM Oral History interview uh, because she is such a pioneer uh, and a wonderful person. Uh, she has been a strong supporter of this program, uh, the Tech Awards, the NAM show for many years. So it's a wonderful opportunity to um, celebrate her and her contributions. So we're going to start today with uh, a clip that you can find. Actually, you can find all of Lenise Pence's interview, the full interview, on our website, which is www.nam.org library. And uh, so if you want to check out the content or refer it to a friend later on, just jump on the website and you can find her interview there. And so we're going to start today and she's going to be talking in this first segment all about her background and passion for music and our favorite question that we get to hear Dan ask, did you have music in your house growing up? Well, one of the things I would love to get is a little bit of your background because I know you have a great passion for music, but I'm not quite sure where that came from. Did you have music in your house when you were a kid? We sure did. Absolutely, always. Um, my mother and my aunt were great singers, and uh, they actually sang on a couple radio shows, and I think one of them was, I think it was Cliffy Stone's Town Hall Party. I grew up in a part of Los Angeles called Compton, and um, uh, so there was a, a lot of music going on there, and um, Believe it or not, there was a big country western thing, which I wasn't into. But I'm the youngest of six kids, and so my older brothers and sisters were, you know, into rock and roll and all of that. And uh, so I just, you know, was born right into it. And, um, and then another kind of interesting thing that really didn't influence the household then, but I'm it has a lot to do with who I am. Um, my mother's maiden name is Wilson, and uh, Betty June Wilson from Hutchinson, Kansas, and her first cousin is Murray Wilson of the Beach Boys. Oh. And uh, he was, he grew up in Kansas too, and uh, he was just the, the little kid that nobody liked, you know, the cousin that they were forced to play with. And so when all the Wilsons, when they got old enough and they moved from Kansas to Los Angeles, and then they would have Wilson uh, picnics at Redondo Beach Park. They would never invite Murray and his boys. So I did not know I was related to the Beach Boys, even though I was an enormous fan. I mean, I was a little surfer girl, you know. That, was, that song was about me. You know, I was like eight or nine years old when that came out. And I didn't find out they were my relatives till I was like 14 and uh, at a family reunion at, at my grandparents 50th wedding anniversary they didn't go but their their grandfather was there and, and um, we have the same great-grandfather okay. so their grandfather and my grandpa are brothers and uh, so they're talking about Dennis Wilson and uh, 
you know, how he's hanging out with Charlie Manson and all that. And I'm going, well, why do you guys care about that? And he goes, because he's your cousin. And I just went, ah, ah. Oh, no, you're joking. So anyway, that was pretty interesting. So, yes, there was a lot of music. My Uncle Willie Wilson was a great bluegrass picker. Um, we would have family sing-alongs, and, uh, and we still do. My mother's 92, and whenever we get together, which is at least once a month, fortunately, she lives down in Laguna Niguel, or Laguna Hills, oh, you know, really? down there. Okay, yeah. And uh, my brothers and sisters and our, all our kids and everything are down there. So um, uh, we all sing play music and sing. It's so corny and we just love it. That's awesome. But uh, yeah, I studied piano and I was in the um, Compton Symphony, Youth Symphony Orchestra, what was it called? Festival Orchestra. And, you know, they had a great music program in the Compton City Schools. So I was one of the flautists and my brother played trumpet and we all were into music and just, there was, just music constantly in That's our house. That's really cool. Yeah. Wow. I know. Lucky me. Yeah. <laughs> and the radio was always going, and then one one sibling would buy a 45 of Raunchy, and then the other one would buy... We had like three 45s of the same song that they'd all go to buy. <laughs> so I have this great record collection. I even have 78s of the coasters that were... Oh. I have a sister 16 years older than I am, so... They were still buying stuff on 78s when she was little, you know. So uh, yeah, it's funny to remember. That's right. There were rock and roll records on 78s. Oh, you a bet. Lot of people think about that, but that's right. Bet. And there were race. It was called race music. Right. Race records. Race records yeah. yeah. Before it was rhythm and blues, or before it was rock and roll. Mm -hmm. So I've got wow. some of those. Wow. Too. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it was just I couldn't help it, and my brother. Wayne, who's 13 years older than I am, he, um, he worked at an electronics store, Jan's Electronics, and so he was bringing home amplifiers and tubes and all of that, and that's one of my earliest, fondest smells, the smell of, of um, vacuum tubes from amplifiers. He'd be working on it and solder and stuff, and, and so that was just kind of going on. So the electrical, electronics thing and the music thing were there. That's you know? Very cool. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, a lot of people now, we think of Compton a little bit differently maybe than what you experienced. Um, what was that, the culture like for you? It was wonderful back then. Um, like I said, we had art in the schools. We had music in the schools. All of the elementary schools had, had orchestras. And then you auditioned for festival orchestra, and so that was throughout the whole school system. And so every Saturday morning from 8 until 10, we had, um, you know, orchestra practice, and we would go and perform in uh, different colleges and different things like that. And we made records. <gasps> yeah, we made records. Oh, they're hilarious. They're so bad, you know. <laughs> you still have some? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I mean, you, you laugh, you just cry. It's so They're so bad. Of uh, pomp and circumstance. And I know, you're just killing. It's just like, we thought we were so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, 
<laughs> you're probably now thinking, I would have, I would have engineered that completely different. <laughs> right? <laughs> I would have put her in the back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a violin. So, yeah. And oh, William Tell Overture. And you know, the tempo is like half speed, and oh, it's just like, <laughs> oh my god, I'll have to pull those out <laughs> anytime I need a good laugh. Yeah, right. I'm feeling too good today. I know what to do. Oh my gosh, yeah, boy, that talk about audio blackmail. <laughs> Somebody could really stick it to me with that. And I still have a, a, a big photograph of all of us and, and all the little girls are sitting there um, all nicely dressed and with their little anklets and all that. And of course, I, I'm, you know, I'm not wearing anklets because I'm hip, you know, and I have... <laughs> I'm the only one. <laughs> I was so bad. Well, the rebel. Yeah. I was born a teenager. My sister says she says she's. I have one who's seven years older than I am, and she says uh, she, I was always a better teenager than she was <laughs> even when I was little. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I have Compton was wonderful. I loved it. It was. Um, uh, we lived on, you know, we, they didn't have cul-de-sacs back then. It was a dead end. We lived on a dead end. That's what <laughs> really it was, yeah. <laughs> and um, so we could play in the street. The only cars that came down were people that lived there. So, oh, somebody's dad's home or somebody's home. And, you know, it was that old thing, you know. Um, they even let us stay out after dark sometimes because they knew right where we were. They could hear us, everybody, in this little block. And... So we played in the street and, you know, it was safe and we had a good time. That's cool. Yeah. So did you see a lot of live performances also growing up? Or? Yes, well my mom made sure that, well Compton had a symphony orchestra and we went to that once a month. She oh. would take us to that. Um, my brother, I, had a, I have a brother who's also a year older than I am and uh, so he and I were in the festival orchestra so we would go to the Compton Symphony Orchestra. And let me see, did we? Well, my dad loved, you know, the Bakersfield sound and the, um, you know, the country stuff, which I, I still haven't really embraced. I can appreciate it, but it doesn't speak to me as much as it does to other people, perhaps. However, well, I think it's because I had it just dumped on me constantly, you know. <laughs> Back then, when you rode in the car, it was their their car, their rules, and you listened to what they wanted to listen to. It wasn't like now, where you know you turn on Radio Disney or something <laughs> for your kids. Um, so um, I heard a lot of oh, but there's a great DJ. That was, he was it's, it's what does he say? It's squeaking, deacon speaking. And that was, I think that was out of Bakersfield. And so you'd hear Buck Owens and you'd hear Furlan Husky and you'd hear all that sort of stuff. And then Compton had a big country western uh, music scene. So you'd see like Tom T. Hall in the grocery store and stuff. And yeah, <laughs> so, you know, there was, a, there, was, there was all kinds of music in our world. That's really cool. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And, uh, 
uh, yeah, and so my parents and my aunt and uncle, I had a great aunt and uncle who, and my cousins, so they all got together all the time. They were kind of like Ricky and Lucy. And, uh, uh, and he was uh, of Spanish descent. His parents came over from Spain and he was, my uncle Tony was to be an opera singer. So he had this beautiful voice. Mm. So he would sing these gorgeous songs during the family get-togethers. He was like the star of the show. And then my mom and my aunt would sing all the songs that my grandpa used to teach them. Don't go in the lion's den tonight, mother darling. The lions are ferocious and may bite. You know, oh, they may bite. That sort of stuff. You know, musical things. Yeah. And uh, so we had that going on. Everything, all music was appreciated. Mm. That's and really we all cool. played musical instruments and... All got ukuleles when we turned eight. That was kind of a rite of passage. You get your ukulele, and uh, and that was fun. So very cool. Yeah. So were there music stores that you went to as a kid? Music stores. Well, we go. Well, here's the thing. Um, not only were we into music, my brother Richard and I were signed up for the um, Screen Children's Guild. When you grow up in Hollywood and you got six kids and, you know, helps pay the, the bills, um, put your kids to work in the, in the movie business. And so that's what happened to us, which we loved. And actually, my parents had bank accounts for our money, so it was ours. But that's how he bought his trumpet. I bought my flute. We got our bicycles and things like that. We bought them ourselves. But we earn the money in the Screen Children's Guild, so we go up to Hollywood all the time, and there's Wallach's Music City. It's Music City. Do, 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 do. It, right on Hollywood and Vine, uh, Sunset and Vine. And uh, wow. right by the Hollywood Palladium. And so that was a big deal, yeah. So we worked on, we were, you know, the extras running around and TV shows and movies and stuff. My brother's first gig, with, his very first job at eight years old was in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. He, he was one of the kids in the birthday party scene. And, yeah. Oh, if you blink, really? you missed him. But, you know, <laughs> who cares? He made right. money and, yeah. And you can still point. Yeah. <laughs> Even if, you know, when you pause it, right? Yeah, ah, yeah. Everybody's still impressed, right? Well, yeah, cool. now we could find him, you right. know. <laughs> <laughs> that's about, you know, that's kind of how it was. So, uh, that's funny. yeah, but I've always loved Hollywood. I've loved uh, music business. I was so into, you know, KFWB, K uh, KRLA, and KHJ were the three main AM rock and roll stations that um, were just on all the time in our house. And uh, so I knew all the IDs and I knew all the DJ's names and the real Don Steele and <laughs> and oh god there's so many um, yeah so just it was just kind of pervasive mm. part of life I can't imagine I oh I can't imagine life ever being without music I you know I'd have to I'd have to go away to where there was some <laughs> Yeah, right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So when you're so you're acting when you were young, was that fun? Oh, it was a blast. Well, it wasn't. It's was it hard to call right? it acting, really, because it would be you know the background kids running around in the westerns and stuff, and 
uh, so it'd be like, cue the kids, you know, and, and oh, we got to go and do that now. Um, but uh, what I loved was all the camera work and the special effects and behind the scenes. And so I was always badgering the the um, cameraman. Now what are you doing? Now what's happening? I said, you know, and they were cool with it. And uh, until they'd say, cue the kids, they go, oh, no, I have to go work now. Can I come back? Yeah, you can come back. Okay. So we go and do our little thing, you know, and then, and then, uh, then I come back and, you know. And so, yeah, it was a blast. It was a lot of fun, and you had school on, you know, on the set. And wow. Yeah, and there were other kids in my class who were also in the Screen Children's Guild, so if they were gone for a week at a time, you didn't think, oh, are they sick? You just knew that they were, they were on a show. Hmm. There was one kid in my class that looked just like, um, you know, remember the Ozzy and Harriet show? Oh, sure, yeah. With uh, Ricky and Ricky David? David, yeah. Well, there was a kid in my class it was just a dead ringer for David Nelson when he was little. So whenever they had flashbacks or tried to show them when they were little kids, he he was always working, you know. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> yeah. What a fun environment that must have been. It was. It was. It was innocent. It was fun. And, you know, it was a good, it's a different way to grow up than kids in other cities, but um, but we loved it. I loved coming into Hollywood, every chance. And then if it was a birthday or something, there was a, uh, the Cinerama was around. Um, I don't know if you know what Cinerama was, but it was a three camera shoot and um, uh, projection for movies. And so it was a big deal, it was a rounded you know, screen. And at the, the Cinerama Dome, that's what that was, okay. that movie theater. But before that, there was the Pacific Cinerama right on Hollywood Boulevard. And um, so I saw, oh, how the West was won and the wonderful world of the Brothers Grimm. And, you know, it was really neat. Yeah. So you get to go there. That's what you do on your birthday, you know, <laughs> go, into the, go to the movies. So it was, I studied film. That was my major mm. until one fateful day. It's really interesting to hear her talking about growing up in Hollywood as a kid, her and her brother just joining the Screen Actors Guild because that's what you did if you had a lot of kids in the family and uh, acted on television and in the movies. Uh, she even had her own bank account. I love all that. It's uh, very interesting because I think what happens in her career, she becomes more and more comfortable because of her background with celebrities. So it wasn't a big deal for her to be in the same room with Steely Dan as they're recording their first album. You know, those sort of things, I believe, became very important to the growth and development of her career as a recording engineer because she was so adept at being around people uh, of all backgrounds and being comfortable in those environments. So I found that background to be very interesting. Yeah, and I think beyond that, too, you know, if you grow up uh, in the acting field, I guess, you would get used to kind of this crazy, hectic schedule of, it's not, she didn't grow up in a nine to five, Monday through Friday, nine to five. And even as a child, you know, you worked, you took huge breaks while other actors are working, you come back. And I think that sets you up really well to fit into the lifestyle of working in the music industry as a recording engineer because you work on other people's schedules a lot of times when the artists show up, when they're ready to record, when they need a break. And so it, I would think that transition into recording was very smooth for her because it was just everything she's known schedule-wise. It's just a really interesting perspective 
you know, starting as, you know, working as an actor, as a, as a kid, which that by itself, a lot of people haven't done or experienced that. And then transitioning into a music career is, it's just really cool. I don't know. I, I like the story a lot. And I think that's a perfect segue into hearing Lenise's perspective of how she made that transition. So good job, Michael. I had a boyfriend who was uh, in a band and um, I guess I was just out of high school and he, his guitar player, his name was Roger, and uh, his guitar player started engineering for Leon Russell, you know, the singer and songwriter, but also he was a member of the Wrecking Crew. And Leon back then had a full-fledged studio, I mean, in his home, which was unheard of. Nobody did that because, you know, it was very expensive, a lot of real estate and huge commitment and all mm. that. But Leon is a brilliant guy. And uh, so he had the studio in his home. Well, I was a huge fan of Leon Russell. And so it turns out Roger said, oh, I'm working, I'm engineering, sound engineering for Leon Russell, and, uh, and he has a studio, you should come over and see it. You know, I'm studying film already in college, and uh, um, I went, sure, I'll come over. <laughs> I could care less about a recording studio that far, and I didn't even know what one was, really. And um, I just wanted to meet Leon Russell. So I went, sure, I'll go, I'll go. And, uh, so I so I go over that night, and um, it's in Encino, and I go, and I find the place, I ring the doorbell, and Leon Russell answers the door. He answered his own door. And he goes, oh, you must be Roger's friend. Come on in. And I just, you know, I just about melted. I couldn't believe it. It was him in person. And, um, but I heard all this great music coming out of the side of me. I mean, this is such a vivid thing that happened, event in my life. Well, it was life-changing. Um, I heard all this, these voices coming out of this room and a beautiful, um, like a choir sort of sound for a record that he was working on called Will of the Wisp, which is a beautiful, beautiful, I mean, just dynamic, wonderful record. And uh, it was like 21 voices. It was his wife's voice. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, uh, Mary McCrary was her name. That's who he was married to at the time. And she just had this fantastic voice. And so I just heard it. And it was truly like the angels were singing and I went in and there's the control room they turned the dining room into a control room and there was a big I think it was a big Sony console and um, they had a Stevens 40 track tape machine which I think maybe there were three maybe ever made and um, he had one of them and um, Mr. Stevens gave one to his wife. I don't know why she'd want one, but who knows. Uh, anyway, 40 tracks. That was incredible. And so they had all of this music coming, and 
It really was. It, it was like I was struck by lightning. It was the epiphany that changed my life, and I just went, Roger, show me how to work this thing. Show me how this, show me all of this. And um, the next day I dropped out of film school, Long Beach State and USC, and found a recording school, which was not easy back then. There weren't very many. Mm. And uh, signed up and then told my parents what I'd done. I mean, it was, I was that uh, sure of myself that mm. this was what I had to do. And, uh, and they were cool with it. Because my dad was the dean of Northrop University, which was an aeronautical technical school. So he got it. He understood. And all the other kids had to go to university. And uh, I dropped out. But he said, it's OK. Just because I wanted you to go doesn't mean that's what you should do. And I think whatever you do, you'll be great at. Whew. Man, didn't expect that, but it didn't matter. I was gonna. This is was my new path, my only path, and uh, so I, I go to the school, Sound Masters Recording School. I'm in the very first class of Sound Masters. First, started out at Sherwood Oaks Experimental College on Hollywood Boulevard. You know, kind of like the learning annex, and there's like 50 people in the class, 50 guys and me. And yeah, didn't matter, I didn't care. Um, sat in the front row, you know, and, and tried to understand these lectures on stuff that just sounded like Japanese to me. You know, and this is a parametric equalizer, and this is a passive equalizer, and this is an active equalizer, and, and this is what, here's compression, and here's limiting, and here's a gate, and here's, a, you know, I'm going, I don't, I don't know what any of this is, and I panicked. And so I called Roger right after class. I mean, I just called him over at Leon Russell's house and I don't know what they're talking about. This is, uh, I just parametric and I don't. And they were just talking about audio. They weren't playing any examples of it, and there was no gear there. It was just in a room, and uh, so I had nothing to relate it to. And so I went, Oh no, how am I going to learn this? So he said. So he says, come over, and, you know, and uh, so the next day, I had a day off from work, I went over there, and he started showing me what this, these different things did. This is what a limiter does. This is what a compressor does. This is, you know, a parametric equalizer. This is a passive equalizer, all these different things. So that got to be our routine. And, um, and Roger was this really knowledgeable kid uh, who, besides working at Leon Russell's house, uh, where by that time it'd be like I'd go over there, ring the doorbell, hey Leon, how's it going? Where's Roger? <laughs> and I became kind of part of the crew. I taught Leon's kids how to tie their shoes and stuff like that. You know, it just, it was a family situation over there. Um, but Roger taught me, so besides the school, I had this great advantage with the studio mm -hmm. there. And um, uh, But Roger was working on his, what he calls his little invention then. Um, 
and uh, his his last name is Lynn. His name's Roger Lynn. You know, he was building that little Lynn drum, the very first drum sampling machine ever that changed the world of recording. I mean, I think he was still a teenager when it got patented. Yeah. What do you remember about that? I mean, he was like... I didn't know anything about it because uh, that came out... He didn't talk about it. I didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. I was... Um, I gra ended up graduating from recording school and so, you know, we went our separate ways. I wasn't hanging out there anymore. I was on to getting a gig. Yeah. And uh, um, so when that came out, I didn't really know what it meant when the Lindrum came out. Um, I just know that a lot of drummers got a little upset about it. Um, but Roger did very well with it. And uh, he's a brilliant guy. You know, I was so fortunate that, you know, I could not have gotten launched like I did without that experience going over there and hanging out and just absorbing everything I could when I wasn't in school. And something to mention as well right now is that um, back in 2005, Dan also had the opportunity to interview Roger Lynn. Um, so if you want to check out that interview, that's on our website. So when I got out, um, it was time to apply for a job. And so I, I went to two studios. I went to Wally Hyder's which doesn't exist anymore, and I came here. And uh, I liked that this was near Westwood, and uh, I don't know who, I think some, somebody I knew knew somebody who worked here, so they said, yeah, it's real nice, you, you know, why don't you come and apply? So I did, and um, turns out that this was uh, one of the, there was already one girl assistant here and there was a girl tech here and the studio manager his name's Gary Starr he was actually the person who was in charge of uh, hiring and technical department and assistant engineers and all of that he with the blessing of Jordy Hormel who owned the village um, built the village um, they liked having women assistants because they said women had, uh, you know, more attention to detail. Their egos weren't so involved with, you know, wanting to be rock stars or whatever that was. Um, we kind of had it together. They felt, and um, and so he hired me, and then uh, and another girl the same day, hmm. and uh, Barbara Isaac. And Terry Becker already worked here, so she was like our mentor. And then they hired Carla, uh, Carla Frederick a few months later. So there were four girls and two guys here as assistants. And that, um, that never happened before and hasn't happened since. But a lot of studios now have female assistants, and um, it's not that big a deal now. You just have to be able to hang and you know, do the job, as long as you could do the job. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was great. Um, I'm so grateful that 
I came here to where that was going to be able to happen. Hmm. I don't know if that would have happened anywhere else. You know, there were moments that were, um, you know, a little difficult, but not that many, really. I mean, the... Uh, there weren't a lot of knuckleheads working here, meaning um, the clients that they brought in uh, that, that recorded at the village were high-end artists and um, the caliber of um, artistry and musical creativity was pretty high by the time it got here. So. Um, they needed somebody to be good at what they did. And um, I had the great fortune of working with a lot of wonderful artists. I mean, my first day here, my first session they put me on, it was a Tuesday afternoon. It just, my anniversary was um, uh, just, uh, well, August 23rd, 1976. I started at the village. Mm -hmm. My first session they put me on, the sit-in on was with Alice Coltrane, John Coltrane's widow, amazing jazz pianist, and a whole big tracking date. That was my very first session here in Studio B, which is a completely different configuration now. Mm -hmm. um, but that was my first session, and I got to work with the band and the last waltz, and um, my biggest and my first whole record was with Steely Dan in Asia. And, uh, Not a bad place to start. No. Mm -mm. But, you know, I had, to st I had to work my way up assisting, sitting in with Terry Becker. And so I assisted her and learned how to be a good assistant through her. So I worked on a lot of great records with um, uh, Rob Fraboni was producing. And... Uh, there would be Blondie Chaplin and uh, the guys from Little Feet and just all sorts of, you know, um, wonderful, wonderful, great musicians. So you had to be good at what you did. And they didn't really care what my gender was. They kind of liked that I was a girl, I think, or that uh, brought a different energy into the room. Only once did I uh, get taken off of a session because the um, producer said I inhibited his barroom banter, <laughs> quote unquote, and that's something. And it turns out a few years later I ended up working for him as his engineer, it's a different person, but uh, in post-production. Mm. Uh, um, then you could keep up with the barroom ba banter at that point, I guess. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was just like, really? I really inhibit that, huh? <laughs> you don't know too much about me. Yeah, yeah. well, I didn't, you know, I, I know not to speak like that, and you just never know who you're going to offend. Right. But, uh, you That's know, funny. boy, if, if, if you can't hang with that sort of barroom banter, you better go do something else. It's just words. <laughs> yeah, right. But he didn't pick up on the fact that you were flexible that way. Uh, no. No. Hmm. But that's all right. I'm, that, it's just fine. Yeah. He got a guy in there and whatever. Very interesting. But that's the only time. Out of, and amazing. I was here for three years. Yeah. 
Everybody so what was do you pretty know cool. about? I'm sorry. What Go do you ahead. know about like the history of this place? Because it was the village recorder at one point. It was too, the right? village recorder. That was the name of it. And um, hopefully, I have my facts straight here. Jordy Hormel uh, built this in um, uh, 1971, and there were three studios. It th this was not part of it. This is Studio D. This was built. Um, like 1978, hmm. I'm thinking because it was being built while I was here and then I actually worked on Tusk and I worked till 1979. So within that time. But before that, this was part of the Masonic Temple. And um, so the studio actually ended at, um, well, where the, the hallway is right coming here. Um, it ended where the stairs are, because that's where Studio B ended, and that was that was as far as it went. So to get to the stairs, you had to go outside the big front door and go up the stairs, and that's where Dick LaPalm's office was. He he was the actual big-time studio manager, and all the offices and stuff were up there. Ed Michelle, who was finance and all of that. Um, but there was Studio A and Studio B, which were uh, identical to each other. They um, were just a mirror of each other, and there was a window in between. So, um, have you been in Studio A? Okay. Sure yeah. Yeah. So the um, how the control room is back there. Well, Studio B's was right here, huh. and. So Studio B's control room was here, and it went that way, and Studio A's was over there, and it went this way, and there was a window in between them. So if they wanted to have a big date, they could pull the curtains, hmm. and they could use both rooms. And um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and then upstairs, at the top of the stairs, there's a little studio called uh, Studio... Um, see and it had a little quad eight board in there and uh, a lot of unusual little sessions took place there I remember oh man getting called in for one and I got a call at 10 o'clock on a Friday night from Carol Farhat who was the person who booked the studio and she said be here by midnight or you're fired which was okay you know, that was basically it. And so, um, and said, and it's going to be a long weekend. And uh, I said, okay, who am I working with? It says, Kinky Friedman, who I didn't really know in, in, uh, for Lone Star Beer commercials. And he's, uh, have you heard of Kinky Friedman? Brilliant guy, uh, great writer. Um, I guess he's kind of a comedian, but he wrote, Songs like They Don't Make Jews Like Jesus Anymore. Kinky Friedman and his Texas Jew Boys. And uh, he was so over the top, being a cowboy, being a Texan. Like he had silver-tipped boots and silver-tipped here and, and big old bolas and big old hat and, big, you know, just way over the top. And um, really, you know... A little off-color humor on his music, and it, and that session went on actually till um, I don't think we took any breaks. I got out of there Monday morning at nine thirty. Wow! 
So it was pretty surreal. It was pretty surreal. And uh, and all these actors had come in like 3 in the morning, like Michael J. Pollard, remember him? Oh, yeah. He would show, you know, and so you're so, you're so tired and you're so beyond, you're so sleep deprived and you're so like this <laughs> that you don't know if it's real or not. <laughs> And I never stayed up that long in my life, and I, I never have since, you know. <laughs> but it was like, do this or you're fired, and that's kind of how it was. There were no unions. There was no... Mm. If you wanted to do this, you just had to do it, and there was no overtime. There was... We did have health insurance, which turned out to be a really good thing for me. But, um, uh, yeah, but, boy, you... You just, wow. it was, it. yeah, yeah, and uh, there, no unions, no nothing. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I remember one week I, I counted up my hours, I, I had over 100 hours in a week, so I'd want done two, at least two sessions a day, and sometimes three, and, because um, I wanted to. You know, I wanted, I didn't want to miss this one, I didn't want to miss this one, but I, I, and we got paid a salary, a flat rate, and I figured out, I made a, a dollar nineteen an hour that week. <laughs> Great career choice. <laughs> but I, well, I, I had my eye on the prize. I was so driven and myopic, I, um, I knew that I wanted to work with the best. So I only wanted to apply at the best recording studios. So fortunately, I didn't have to go to too many. They hired me like the next day. Um, but I wanted to work with the best producers and the best engineers on the best music with the best artists in the best studio. And whatever that meant. And um, so I did. And yeah, it could get crazy sometimes. Usually the sessions they booked on weekends weren't, you know, the high-end stuff because they just had to, they, you know, having somebody in the room is kind of better than nobody. So when you first start out, you get on these. <laughs> but it's good experience. Okay, so we're setting up for the, uh, the beginning of her amazing career as a recording engineer, her first job at the Village Studios there in Los Angeles on uh, Butler Avenue in West LA, uh, which is an interesting location. The, uh, the original building goes back to the 1920s. It was made uh, by the Freemasons as a, uh, an institution for the Masons to get together and um, do their, uh, their regular business. And interestingly enough, just sat for many, many years uh, until it was made into a recording studio. And now that recording studio is a part of music history. I was trying to come up with a list of the folks that have recorded there, and I think it really is easier to list who wasn't recorded there. Um, but it's an amazing history, and I think Lenise knew that. And what I like about uh, her disposition as a recording engineer is she takes in the environment in which she's working. And as a result of embracing the village and uh, having that opportunity uh, for which we'll hear a little bit more about with Steely Dan uh, and the Asia Project, she really recommended um, 
the folks that were around her to embrace that history. So I've heard from uh, Jeff Greenberg and some others uh, that, that were there at the time that um, she really wanted to be a part of that environment. She wanted to make that environment uh, useful for the musicians. You know, the whole idea of bringing in the couch and making it relaxed, uh, playing music, uh, to get them to relax, having peaceful time for them to uh, sync with their instruments. Uh, all of that, I think, was a very important element of that early project. And uh, from the folks that we've interviewed, Skunk Baxter and others who recalled the Asia Project, all of these elements come to mind and are often talked about that setting, that environment. So uh, it goes back to, I think, her appreciation for the heritage of that building and um, her respect for the art of recording engineering. Uh, another thing to, to say at this point, if you don't mind, is uh, how proud the Nam family is uh, to have her talk to us. Uh, she was one of the very first recording engineers that we interviewed for the Oral History pro pro Program, uh, even before we were totally embracing live sound and the pro audio world. Um, she came to us and, and discussed the fact that uh, this element of the music industry needs to be better documented. So we're very proud to have that collaboration with her. And as a result, she's helped us land a couple of wonderful interviews uh, with other people, in particular recording engineers over the years. So let's uh, hear from Lenise about her working with the Village Studios. And then uh, from there, she goes on to talk about her finishing up with recording school and her transition into things that she's learned over the years, as well as uh, now that she's teaching, um, lessons she would teach other people coming into the field. I remember uh, when I first started, um, they said, well, go up into Studio 3, um, um, Studio C, um, because, uh, and, and take, just go in the tape, tape vault, pick out any outtake or something, and just put it up and start playing around, get to know the room, get to know the console and all that. So I go in the tape library. You know, I've been here, like, this is my first week. I'm going, okay, well, there's Bob Dylan, and there's the band, and there's, um, oh, you know, Sly Stone, and there's, you know, there's, what, gee, who do, you know, um, Presley Stilton Nash, and who do I pick? No, oh, I'll take Bob Dylan. Okay. Really, too much of Bob Dylan outtakes. <laughs> I mean, it, it was a tough decision. There was so much to choose from. <laughs> I mean, it was great. So put that up there and listening to outtakes and playing with a little console. You know, that's what I meant. That's what I wanted. That's why I was here. That's cool. And that and and the village came through for me. I got to work on some really wonderful records here that I still, to this day, am proud of and love listening to. And you can't say that about a lot of <laughs> music that you spent, you know, months and months on. And uh, um, great music came out of here. So, but that was my goal. Well, you had to focus. Yeah. Well, it was, I was so myopic, I was just like, boink, that, you know, nothing was going to get in my way. And even in the beginning, 
when people said, oh, girls don't do this, or there aren't, back then they said there aren't enough jobs. There aren't enough jobs for, you know, for schools, you know, you're never going to get a job, girls don't do this, all this sort of stuff. And it was like, no, 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 I don't need you to tell me no, I need you to tell me how. So if you weren't going to tell me how, then I go talk to him, or I go talk to him, or can you tell me how? Because if you're going to tell me no, then I'm going to... I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to you, you know. Um, yeah, that's all I wanted because I knew somebody had to do this job. That's very cool. Before I forget, um, and we get too far away from it, did you continue with the the school, the the classes that you took? Were I you, finished. You finished. Yeah, I yeah. have a certification. That's very cool. Yep. 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 From Soundmasters. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Because they didn't teach it in. Uh, university right back then and there weren't all these recording schools like there are now I actually am an adjunct instructor at a recording school here in um, in Hollywood and I also lecture at other schools and you know on panels for this and that and you know I'm all over the place but um, that didn't exist back then so to find a recording school was you know, not a lot of choices. Mm. So um, the cool thing about the school I went to, because it had just started, uh, it, the person who was teaching it at Sherwood Oaks Experimental College, his name was Brian Inglesby, and he was an engineer, great sound engineer. And so he opened up his own school, and so we were learning at other places besides Sherwood Oaks Experimental College, so that's when he started Soundmasters. But he hadn't built his own facility yet that had a recording studio or any of that in it. So we would have lecture, and then we'd have, you know, like for three weeks, and then we would have lab for the next few weeks. And then, so what he had to do was book studio time. So my labs were done at Capitol wow. and at Conway. Those are the first studios I ever, you know, got my hands dirty in. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. First mix I ever did was at Conway. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay. In, in school. Yeah. But it sounded really good. <laughs> <laughs> I thought. They thought. I mean, it's like, all right, I'm doing the right thing. This works. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. So. And so what do you... Um, one of the things I really want to talk about is um, is your teaching because of what you've learned. So I'm kind of curious at this point, what what were some of the key things that you learned at that at that level that you still feel oh, gosh. applicable enough to want to teach to somebody else? Oh, it's so important to be a people person and to understand that this industry. That, and especially being in recording studio, it's a um, we're providing a service. It's a service to a client. Um, it's a wonderful area to be in. It's one of the few industries where you have science meets art. So it's it's really wonderful uh, and unique in that sense. And you'll get a different type of clientele. However, certain things need to be in place. And uh, if you look around the village, you will see, well, I bet you if you look at those pencils, they're all per perfectly sharpened. 
and all those Sharpies work and everything works because the client has choices. So um, you need to provide a service that is and, and treat them like royalty and this studio is a, like a five-star hotel. And um, so it takes a lot of people to make a record. It's not about the technology. The technology was designed to service the art. And that's one thing that a lot of people in, in the schools, it's really important that the students get taught this because you have to be able to get along with people. It's you bring an individuality to a team effort and you are part of a team that is creating this music. And so you have to be able to put that first. And so one of the classes that I taught, or one of the things I lecture on at the school where I'm, where I'm an adjunct instructor, now I'm teaching music production, how a producer works yeah. with a client in the studio. So it's kind of like an etiquette class. Uh, I also teach production sound, post-production, and sound design. And um, so um, the etiquette class I don't do so much, but it all is very important how people work with each other. You never keep the client, you never keep the artist waiting because you're setting up your post-tool session. Mm -hmm. You know, they do not wait on us. We have that together because they can go anywhere. They can choose to go anywhere. So you want to make sure their experience is the best it can possibly be. Yeah, well said. It's really interesting to me that the first thing that you said when we were talking about teaching and wanting to convey what's important, it's we're providing a service. Yeah. And if you forget that, you're probably going to be in trouble. Uh, yes. Well, it's interesting. You yeah. won't stay in business because, uh, and it's funny, um, I would take students to, on tours of uh, different studios with that in mind, with the studio manager or the owner talking about. Uh, you know, not so, we, they go through the gear saying, we have the little of this, you know, this console and this, and, you know. Um, but what it was really about is the service you provide mm. to the client. Because if they're not happy, they can go anywhere they want. And so you want to make sure they want to come to where you are and come again and tell their friends or tell their colleagues and that's how you stay in business. Mm. So uh, attention to detail is paramount because that just shows that you have a respect for the client. That uh, if, if, and that's why I pointed out those pencils. One of the sayings that they have is um, uh, you can tell how successful a studio is by how sharp their pencils are. All those little things make a big difference. So, um, and everybody who works at the studio is very important. Um, if you have everybody from the studio owner, studio manager, all the way down to the the runners who go and run for you, that's what keeps things flowing, keeping that session running smoothly, and making the uh, artists and talent feel appreciated and 
mm. providing them with a wonderful environment to create in. And that, you know, because when they come in, that, that's their happy place. That's where they want to be. You know, the best thing that they can do is be in a recording studio making music. So perpetuate that, carry that on, and provide that for them. Because if they come in and they have to wait around because things aren't set up correctly or things are broken or anything like that, um, you know, that, then the, that happy thing goes down, 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 down. They start getting anxious and, you know, watching money, you know, fly out the window and you don't ever want them to go to that place. You just want them to be creating music. That's the goal. And I think, here, check this segue out, and I think a good example of that from looking at your body of work is um, Asia. Oh. <laughs> Making those people feel comfortable, right? And not necessarily very easy to do, I would No. Guess. Well, right? Donald, Donald and Walter, uh, that really isn't a priority of theirs. <laughs> not high on the list. No, no. And um, it's, it's about making their music and getting it right. And, um, um, you know, it took me about, well, I worked on that record for 10 and a half months. And uh, it was a few months before I wasn't intimidated by them. Really? And we actually got to be good friends. Walter and I were friends on one level, and, and Donald and I were friends on another level. Roger Nichols, their, you know, Roger the Immortal, rest his soul, he was my main mentor. And uh, so I was so fortunate to learn from the best and work with the very best here. And uh, so I was just so adamant about it, I guess the universe had to abide. <laughs> yeah, because you really wanted the project, right? Oh, man. Yeah. I did, well, I did. I really wanted it, um, and um, other people didn't because they knew it would be really, really long. Uh, I was fine with that. And in fact, to make sure I got it, I um, I had a friend who worked for Warner Brothers, and I asked him if he could get me all of their, you know, um, get me their records, you know, the, their promotional records, but get me every single Steely Dan record, and I learned them all. And I learned who played on what. I learned, you know, I, I'm a little rusty now, but there was a time I could tell you every song on every single record on the A side and the B side in the right order. And, um, and I learned them all. So I would, I mean, be as educated as possible. Mm -hmm. So I would know who these musicians were that were coming in. And I would know their body of work, know what to, hopefully to expect. They were, but they're different. They're Donald and Walter. <laughs> and, 
Well, there was a lot of great artists that played on on those albums. Oh yeah, that particular one. Asia. Yes. So what was it like? I mean, they would just have certain times where certain people would come in. Or? Yes, they. Uh, yes. Well, we did some of the tracks were cut in New York. I think at A and R Studios, and uh, they worked in a few other studios around town a little tiny bit. Um, so there are a lot of studios that, well, the Asia album was done here. And I go, really? <laughs> you sure? Yeah. <laughs> Do an overdub or something? Um, <laughs> because it was mostly done here. Mm. I know. Uh, it was a long, long haul. But, um, but it was great. So we did some of the, the basic tracks here. And um, then uh, we did overdubs, and we worked at night, Mondays, Mondays through Fridays, and um, just about every week. There were sometimes I think they took off for a little bit, and I worked on something else for a little bit, but not really. Um, but great artists came in, you know, Pete Chrislieb to do the sax on uh, Deacon Blues. And um, Michael McDonald sang on a lot of backgrounds. Um, Timothy B. Schmidt did too. Uh, J.D. Souther did on a couple songs. Um, the great background singers of um, uh, Shirley Matthews, Clyde e. King, and Vanetta Fields. Those were those were the girls, and um, so it was wonderful to have them in. Um, Victor Feldman on piano. Oh my gosh. I got goosebumps. Look at <laughs> Oh, that was gorgeous. The song Asia. And oh, and Wayne Shorter from Weather Report. Yeah. Chuck Rainey, I think. Oh, Chuck Rainey. Yes, of yeah, course. Sure. On bass. Oh, man. You know what? His, his hands looked, you know, I told you I had my Uncle Willie. Um, he had the same hand. He reminded me so much of my uncle that I grew up with uh, learning. I mean, my uncle taught me how to harmonize when I was three, and and he was just such a great picker. But he had this thumb that was just so dexterous, and he would play with his eyes closed. And the first time I saw Chuck Rainey play, I just about flipped. It was like watching my my own uncle and how his son moved and his eyes were closed and and uh, boy what a nice guy what a, so many great players mm. um was Scott guitar players i don't I think he played on this one yeah. um but there was a uh, robin ford oh, yeah. um let me see um oh god so many guitar players, my mind's going blank right now. Uh, Hugh McCracken was on it. Um, Elliot Randall. Uh, golly. So many people. Quite a list. Yeah, yeah. it's quite a list. But uh, it was when Wayne Shorter, the, the story about Wayne Shorter, um, uh, Donald really liked Weather Report. Are you familiar with Weather Report? Yeah, okay, Joe Zavanaugh. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so I think they're working on heavy weather here in town somewhere. And um, 
and Donald really wanted Wayne Shorter to be on the record, so he called him or contacted him and left him a message. Well, Wayne didn't know who Steely Dan was or anything, so he didn't even call him back or anything. And Donald's like, mm, all really down. And, and Dick LaPalm upstairs, um, his, he, was, um, he just passed away this past year. His memorial was here. Bless his heart, he was 85, I think. Um, wonderful guy, but the jazz lobbyist. He used to be with Chess Records and Leonard Chess and, you know, uh, Nat King Cole, Muddy Waters, and just great people. So Dick was known as the jazz lobbyist in his later years, but he knew everybody. And so he called Wayne and said, you really want to play on this record. You, you'll like these guys. You really need to do this. You, trust me, you would like that. And, and uh, so he got Wayne down here. And uh, I'll never forget that day because uh, Donald always was kind of like, he never, his posture wasn't great. And he was kind of doing this with his hair all the time and kind of goofy looking. And, and um, uh, just being Donald kind of, well, he, that day that Wayne Shorter was coming in, he was wearing a pressed shirt and standing up straight. I'd never seen him stand up straight before. <laughs> he was just, you know, showing respect. Mm. And uh, Wayne went in, did six passes of the solo left. They comped the solo, put it together. That was it. Magic. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those bone-chilling, emotional, it just takes you, that song still to this day takes me on an emotional journey. I remember one time I was working up at the record plant in Sausalito. So I had gone to the city for dinner and going over the Golden Gate Bridge and I had this great old Mercedes and you know, uh, flying over the Golden Gate Bridge with Asia playing and I just, it was just the most amazing moment, you know, the end of it coming and bam, 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 da -da 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 -da, bam, da -da -da. And driving over the Golden Gate Bridge and hearing Donald's, you know, uh, synthesizers coming in and all of that. See, look, I got goosebumps again. And with the lights of the Golden Gate Bridge on this beautiful night, it was it was absolute magic. It was a perfect soundtrack to my life, right then, and kind of, <laughs> kind of is still. <laughs> Lucky me. So, just some facts about uh, Asia. Um, so it was the sixth album by Steely Dan, and it became the group's best-selling album. It uh, peaked at number three on the U.S. charts, number five on the U.K. charts, and it was uh, Steely Dan's first platinum album, and it sold over five million copies, which is, you know, not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, slightly successful, I guess. A few more than mine. <laughs> and also uh, was inducted into the... Grammy Hall of Fame as well, which is another accomplishment that pretty impressive. 
What's interesting is part of the legacy of that album is how, of course, it was produced and engineered. Among the many things that come to mind uh, when I listen to that album is just how clever, I'll use that word, clever the uh, the engineers and, of course, Lanise uh, working in a variety of studio musicians into the Steely Dan group to the point where um, you couldn't really tell the difference. And I think that was a very important change um, because uh, a lot of the albums that were being produced at the time uh, and certainly the legacy of the Village Studios is the uh, self-contained band. So to bring in uh, someone like Bernard Purdy on drums and Skunk Baxter on guitar and uh, place them within the groove of the band um, was different, uh, certainly in that setting. So um, I think that's part of what I enjoy most when I listen to that album is just how all of those different backgrounds of musicians come together for that one purpose. And also on the recording side of things too, um, the, the album was recorded so well that that audiophiles use it as a test to just you know test their um, their gear to test their production, um, which is really saying something. What a compliment to a recording engineer knowing that people use your recording to, you know, see if what they have is up to par, which is pretty impressive. Thanks for joining us for part one of the Lenny Spent Oral History interview. If you want to check out the video or any other NAM oral history interviews, be sure to go on our website. And then come back and join us in two weeks for the conclusion of Lenny Spent.